Thanks for downloading this episode of On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman, the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. He's a high school dropout, a former quadriplegic, a 25-time Ironman, the father of three, and an IBM fellow, one of the highest honors a technical professional can achieve in business today. His past is storied and diverse. He's built systems to protect the gambling industry from card counters, technology that allows organizations to work, collect, and analyze personally identifiable information without invading personal privacy, and today he works to make sense of data as it happens. His name is Jeff Jonas. He is Chief Scientist at IBM Entity Analytics, and it is my distinct honor to have him here with me at Comply Socially in Santa Monica, California, for this very special episode of On the Record Online, sponsored by IBM. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Hi. There, there was only one lie in all of that. The, okay. Uh, my number of Ironmans is now up to 33. I did six more uh, this year. I tried to do five in August in five countries. That didn't turn out so good. But I, I did three on three continents in two weeks in August. So... You know, it's actually very intimidating because, you know, as a, as a business person who's so accomplished to also be someone who has such great physical fitness, it's like, oh man, what am I not doing that I should be doing? I mean, do you find like it makes you more effective as a business person to be doing, to be doing these, you know, what is it like a triathlon or a- yeah, an Ironman is a, it's a 2.4 mile swim, 112 mile bike ride, and then you do a full marathon. I'm not really that fast. So roughly between seven and a half and eight and a half hours of racing, then I start a marathon. What it does, you know, is it kind of resets your head about what's possible. Like going out for a 200 mile bike ride, it just resets your head about what can be accomplished. So it, it, it relates to my work because every now and then, you know, you get, if you're innovating and you're pushing the front edge of things, now and then you get to things that are really hard. And it takes a ton of energy. Like the number of times this year I've worked between 24 and 36 hours straight, probably five, six times this year. And doing these Ironmans, uh, it just resets your head what's possible. But when you do an Ironman, you're not doing that for the first time, right? You've been practicing and you've already satisfied these minimums before you get into it. So it's not like, oh my God, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. That's true. But they're, they're just, they're all hard. It just continues to reset your brain about what can be accomplished. Every now and then I get to something hard and I just go, I think I can get through this and I can just put my foot on the gas pedal and power through and work 36 hours straight and get something done that needs to get done. And these Ironmans, it's like last year I did, I did six Ironman last year as well. I only swam six times only on race day. I didn't do any swim training. I don't have, I don't really have time to do much training. So it's all of them are brutal. It's not like I spent a lot of time training. And when you like meet other people in business who are also, you know, able to do marathons and, and Ironman competitions and, and triathlons, do you, is your perception that this person is somehow more effective in business as a result? No, they're always faster than me. That's how slow I am. <laughs> Got it. Well, listen, I want to talk to you about big data, and I want to start uh, with the discussion of context. 
Now, in a previous episode of this podcast, NetVibe's CEO, Freddie Minney, said, context is the comparison of metrics. Can you explain in simple layman's terms what the idea of context is and why it's so important to the field of big data? Well, I have a completely different definition of context. The definition that I use as it's related to my work is this definition, better understanding something by taking into account the things around it. When you see the word bad in a sentence, you look at the words around it to know what kind of bad it is. If I reached into my pocket right now and pulled out a puzzle piece that had flames on it, and that's all it had, it was just a puzzle piece with flames on it, and I handed it to you and said, good news or bad news, how would you know? Only if you take that puzzle piece to the puzzle to see the surrounding pieces, would you realize it's in a fireplace near a glass of wine, which is good news, or taking that single puzzle piece with flames on it, finding out it's near the kid's bedroom in the carpet. Bad news. That's context. So context to me is weaving together a diverse observation space that brings more fidelity, a more complete picture. And when you do that, you're making higher quality predictions for opportunity or risk. So how do you decide what to compare to what? The way you compare one piece of data to another is the features that are exposed on it. Is the features on the data. I'll give you a... I was actually thinking about this process uh, some years ago, and I thought about two facts. If you had one fact that said fish are dying, and you had another fact that said Jeff Jonas likes to wear black, how would you compare them? Actually, the, I actually played with that in my head. I was like, how would you compare that? And I realized the way that you associate data to other data is features or edges of the data that touch. But there's no data there that touches the fish are dying, Jeff Jonas likes to wear black. Those would be like two puzzle pieces in a puzzle that are nowhere near each other on the puzzle board. You just have to have features that connect. So if you have you know, a Twitter handle in one data source and you have another data source that has no Twitter handles, how would you compare them? Well, you, you wouldn't because there's no features. So the question is what features can you use to allow you to connect data? Explain this concept of features. A feature would be like a name or an address. A car has a VIN number and a make and a model and a color. Those are features. So you, you built this system that um, helped uh, the gaming industry put card counters out of business. Just to not overstate that, it made it harder for the uh, MIT card count team to have a free run. What were they doing and what features were you able to gleam onto to debunk their system? Before this card count team method that the MIT group used, an individual would card count. They would watch the deck as it played out. They would determine when the deck had a lot of tens in it because they're counting the tens. When the deck has a lot of tens, it has a slight benefit to the player. And so regularly, in normal circumstances, a card counter is making small bets like $25, $25, $25. And then when the deck has a lot of tens, they jump to 500, 500, or 1,000, 1,000. And it's just bet variation. Well, it's very easy to see in the surveillance room. In the surveillance room, they're watching somebody bet a smaller amount, and then suddenly they're betting a higher amount. So they just back the tape up, replay it, and count the cards. They go, oh, but he's going to raise his bet now. So when somebody does that, they just flat bet him. They say, whatever bet you start the hand with, uh, the deck with, you have to make that bet all the way through. You can't vary your bet. Card counters have to vary their bet. Well, what the MIT card count team did is they split the shooter from the sensor. They had one person at the table counting. 
they would have somebody else that would just show up and make only big bets. So you could, it, they've separated the signal. Does that make sense? Kind of. But what I'd like to know is you said in the surveillance room they're watching. Well, was it, a, was it humans yeah. that were figuring out what was going on? Or was there some sort of computer system behind the scenes no. that was tracking the, this whole it thing? It starts with, if you're playing blackjack and you suddenly make a big bet, the dealer has an obligation to, to yell out to the floor supervisor. Just They say, checks play or money plays. It just means you had a big bet. So the, the floor supervisor looks over and goes, yeah, they're making a bigger bet. So then they call the surveillance room. They just determine whether they want the play evaluated. If they want the play evaluated, they call the surveillance room and they say, you know, BJ74, meaning blackjack, table seven, seat four, evaluate the play. What they do is they just back up the surveillance tape. Now they just watch that player playing and they watch the cards that are coming out and they determine if that person, what, what methods they're using, if any. They evaluate their play. But what if I just happened to fall into that trap? I, I wasn't counting cards, but I just decided I wanted to double down at that point. Well, they are so cautious about tapping somebody on the shoulder and affecting their play. In fact, this is the, one of the things that I learned in Vegas, building systems, is they, their interest in false positives and false negatives are so low. They do not want to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, we don't like the way you're playing, when you're just a good guy and you just have lucked into it. So they would, they would watch for the trend where you're, you're moving your bet with the counting of the card. As soon as you're moving your bet, every time the card count is moving, you're going up and down, and it's following that exact flow. I mean, the probability that you're card counting is very high. So the system I built, they had a watch list of people that they were trying, trying to keep an eye on, and uh, we automated that so they could search it more quickly. We implemented facial recognition in that in 1996. The MIT card count team thought it was the facial recognition, but it really wasn't the facial recognition that we were using to catch them. We were, the, uh, the surveillance intelligence community had some data that the card counters didn't know they had. It's one of the ways you catch bad guys in data. Jeff, when the Syrian Electronic Army hacked the Twitter account of the Associated Press, the AP, with a simple social engineering scam, I might add, uh, and sent out a bogus tweet about an explosion in the White House, the event triggered electronic trading systems to dump $134 billion worth of stock. Uh, Rich Brown, head of Electron, yeah, Electron Analytics, which is a Thomson Reuters unit that sells news feeds that computers can read, said that the words explosions or Obama alone wouldn't have triggered the selling, but add White House, and it's a combination even the slowest computer couldn't miss. Um, how might the use of contextual analysis prevented this from happening? Ooh, well, one of the challenges, there's two parts to this. One part is when you put algorithms on triggers, in other words, there's no human in the middle, you get this phenomena where sometimes the algorithms start running away on you, and that's evidence of that. But... The question is, what secondary data would you have to have to see that that was a false positive? Like, it's the, that was the only evidence, right? If, if that one source was the only source, part of that is trying to find a lie. Like, if you said something and it's a lie, how do you find out something's a lie? And the way you find that out with data is you look for a second piece of data that disagrees with it. So the question but, is, what second piece of data was there that would disagree with that? Well, I mean, in a circumstance like this, it's not uncommon for the Associated Press to break news. And so if you apply that type of knowledge to the stock market, where fortunes are made and lost in a matter of seconds, yeah. you don't really have the time to be able to fact check. 
I'd be pretty concerned running automated algorithms with their fingers on the trigger so fast. But, but that's the that's the thing. Businesses are trying to cut down the latencies too. Like, you know, Goldman Sachs, some year, a few years ago, I think it was 2007, in fact, said every millisecond they can speed up their algorithm. It saves them, makes them $100 million a year. There's no time to put a human in the middle of that. It'll be interesting to see what, how that evolves over coming years where big algorithms are making big decisions and suddenly huge swings in the stock market happen. So what about Watson? What if you put Watson in there instead of a person? Well, on one level, you could say it'd be as smart as a Jeopardy champion. <laughs> what is Watson doing differently? You know, after IBM bought my company, I was touring around the labs and there were two technologies that really caught my interest that were related to my own. And one of those was Watson. And one of the things that I liked about Watson, and this is before it beat the game Jeopardy, when, when it's analyzing the data and it starts finding things it agrees with, it actually starts looking for places for disagreement. It actually looks for the disagreement. It looks for contradictory data. And I remember looking at that and thinking, that's real interesting. That's probably a very smart way to do that. And I think that's one of the, one of the many things that makes Watson unique. The thing is, you think of a question that Watson can answer, it's a question based on a lot of historical information. But when you're making decisions like trading stocks, there's, you, you're sort of predicting the future. So, you know, you can't necessarily predict the future based on the past. So maybe Watson can't answer something like that, but they can answer, you know, what is the Syrian Electronic Army? Probably. I know you're not a digital media monitoring guy. I know that's not your, your thing, um, but it is something my listeners are interested in. Now, when Google announced that they'd be sunsetting Google Reader, uh, which was really the only free media and social media monitoring service that also had basic but some form of analytics and the ability to search within specific feeds that you're monitoring, it really did create a bit of a vacuum in the marketplace. And in terms of alternatives, free alternatives, there's a service called Feedly, which I know you're not familiar with, but they basically have a simple UI and native mo mobile apps. And uh, that was enough for them to sort of rush in and fill the void. And they were able to inherit a lot of the um, uh, users that were left high and dry when Google sunsetted Reader. Um, but I actually saw another contender that I wrote about uh, called NetVibes as a, as a good alternative. They're owned by a French conglomerate. And, um, and the reason are I... These, are these the kind of services you give them a few keywords of things that you want to watch for? It basically monitors all of what all of Google's kind of content or well, monitor just Twitter? I mean, what's its universe? You can choose. You can choose. So basically you can monitor based in different... So you can monitor different sources based on Boolean queries. So you could monitor Twitter. You could monitor Facebook accounts that don't have their privacy settings set to prohibit you from doing so. You could monitor news. Uh, you could monitor Google News, Yahoo News. You could monitor blogs. So you could say AML, invest anti-money laundering investigations, and everything in the world that is said that includes those words, they would grab it. That's correct. Anything that's public... They would find it and they would deliver it to you. And that would include across blogs and news services and that's correct. And documents posted on Google. That's correct. And then they'd give you some ability to analyze that and compare it to other data sets. 
Um, well, that's what NetVibes does. Feedly, on the other hand, will yeah. just give you the ability to monitor bigger, more known sources. You, you couldn't hack an RSS feed and put it into Feedly. They won't support that. Mm-hmm. But in NetVibes, you could. In NetVibes, you could also bring in other data, like say you wanted to compare discussion to sales volume. Uh-huh. You could import that sales volume metric and compare the two. And, and it's the type of, of tool that someone non-technical like me could use. I wouldn't need a team of computer scientists to get it up and running. You tell me, but I would think that it would still be too much information and not precise enough. Some would say filled with false positives. But the way I would think about that, I would consider it a decent tier one triage. Like, I don't need, this, I don't need to, my start, starting kit to be the whole universe. I want a portion of the universe. Then I'm going to use that and coordinate it with the other data that I have internally to then find the real nuggets. I wouldn't, I wouldn't think of it as the actual nugget finder. It would find too many things. Or is, how is it really? Is it possible to find the nuggets by structuring a Boolean query? I would think you'd need secondary data in addition, in addition to that. I'd use that as just the red puzzle pieces. Okay. And I would use, and I would get just the red puzzle pieces. Like, but they each have flames on them, so you're not sure if it's good news or bad news. Right. And then I would commingle it with other secondary data. And that's what I would use to then really focus a human's attention. Like, I, I think the goal is, where should I be focusing my attention? So you, you sign up for a feed like that and it gives you a thousand things a day. Well, that's not, I mean, it's better than having to look at a trillion things a day. Right. But it's still too many things to look at a day. Clearly, so, but couldn't you then sort it again with more keywords? Well, yes, but, well, that's just like trying to look more closely at all the red puzzle pieces. I, I think you can do that to some degree. I did a blog post about this called Data Beats Math. There's a point where just doing more queries against the same red puzzle pieces only takes you so far. I think you have to add other secondary data to it. So what a lot of the systems offer, and most of us are quite dubious of their accuracy, is sentiment analysis. Yeah, I'm the beneficiary and the victim of sentiment sentiment analysis systems. You know, it's not my own area, but if somebody says, hey, we want to make a claim about what the sentiment is, up or down, I'd say, great, tell me, what is it? Is it up or down? The question is, do you want to do you want to make, uh, you know, buying, selling, and, you know, what kind, what, what kind of decisions are you going to make on that? If they're marketing decisions, it's probably, it's safer than if it's, you're making decisions about what to investigate next. If you had to, you know, shooting from the hip, give me some indication of the accuracy, percentage accuracy of sentiment analysis today. No clue. No clue. No clue. But clearly, you're not going to make you know key business decisions based on sentiment analysis. You, you did say that, yes? If you're trying to figure out what ad to give somebody next, that's a fine business decision. If you're trying to figure out whether you're going to give them employment or credit, you should be really concerned about that because we have something called the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I do a lot of work in the privacy community. The Fair Credit Reporting Act is one of the better privacy laws in the world. And this is if you're going to use um, any kind of data that decreases somebody's access to credit or a job or insurance, you have to tell them what the derogatory was and have to give them a chance to dispute it. So if you're going to use that kind of information to take, not give somebody credit or charge them more in their credit score, you, that you should be more, way more cautious. There are some limits, right, to the Fair Credit Reporting Act. Like if I was going to get a job in the casino cage, that would be fair game, right? For my employer to look at or prospective employer to look at if they're considering me for that job. Well, when you get a... When you go to work in some places, they'll do a background check on you. Other, some places don't do a background check. Some places do. When they do a background check on you, they have to disclose to you that they would like to access to your credit report, and you have to authorize that. When you see the credit report, then and you make any um, 
negative impact against them, like not give them the job because you saw something derogatory. You have to tell them what it was so they have a chance to dispute it. It's a great thing. It just gives transparency to the, in the process to the people that could be affected by bad data. I want to tell you a story about the Internet of Things. Okay. So there's this conference that I've been chairing for the last few years called the Digital Impact. And this last year, one of our keynotes was a guy who was an uh, independent designer who was often engaged by manufacturers to figure out a way to connect their products to the Internet. And he gave this presentation about his experiences. He said he was working for a office chair manufacturer. And the office chair manufacturer had him monitor how people use chairs. And he said, actually, if you monitor how someone uses a chair, you see everyone has a unique signature in terms of how they use a chair. And, you know, then we started thinking, well, if everyone's got a unique signature to the chair and you can monitor how they use the chair, then what could you do to improve their productivity through the chair? And one of the things they came up with was, well, if someone's idle in the chair for a long period of time, you know, you could vibrate. You could shock them. Yeah, right. (laughs) You could vibrate the chair. Right. And my eyebrows kind of go up and thinking, oh, my God. Right. Then he goes into this presentation about this pilot project that he did for a healthcare provider. Apparently, a lot of older patients were calling 911 um, and getting an ambulance to bring them in. They would get a battery of tests and they would be sent home. They didn't find anything. They realized these people were just lonely. And so what they did <laughs> was they got these teddy bears and the teddy bears had the lights in them and they vibrated and they said things. And what they would do, is they would buzz the teddy bear and say something and the lights would go on once in a while just to sort of show the person that they're not alone, hopefully make them feel less lonely. And it hit me at that point. I thought, oh my God, this is the future, right? They're going to buzz my chair. And then when I go crazy, they're going to give me a teddy bear <laughs> and they're going to wake up so that I don't, you know. And you look at how profit motive integrates technology first because they're really the only ones that can afford to do it and it's 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 frightening so what i would based on your experience and your knowledge what scares you about the internet of things i think as sensors get smaller you won't know where the sensors are like right now you walk down the streets it's got like there are surveillance cameras here and you can see them I think, I think a lot of people would be a little creeped out by knowing that there was a sensor in your chair that was non-perceivable or that your flower pot in the room here was actually just sensing voice. It was a, it was a, well, we are being recorded, but it was another recorder, you know? So the question is, do you know what data is being collected? Because the Internet of Things really just means sensors everywhere. And we're going to see, we're certainly going to see a lot more of that. Is it something that keeps you up at night? I mean, do you think about that? No, I think the world is becoming a more safer place. I think you're going to live older today than any time in the history of mankind. You're going to live older and healthier. So I think there's lots of, lots of goodness there. I think the, the saturation of sensors are, are, we're actually opting into them. People are creating irresistible services. On my phone, you know, when I go to turn the, the geolocation off, it goes, are you sure? I mean, if you turn it off, we won't be able to find your phone. Right. So you go, oh, that's pretty irresistible. Right. So that's the journey that we're on is all these irresistible services. Right. And it's causing people to just sign up for everything and let, let there be lots of surveillance. Well, you created this system that lets b- businesses and organizations analyze personally identifiable information without violating privacy rights. How do you do something like that? How is that even? It sounds like 
It's impossible to do that. Anytime you want to weave data together from different piles, you have to bring it together. And every time you bring it together, you're copying it. And every time you copy it, you've increased the risk. It's going to run away on you. So one of the things that I invented was a technique that allows you to anonymize the personally identifiable information first, like your name and address and phone, and then analyze it robustly after it's been anonymized. Anonymize it first, then move it. Most techniques are you have to move it, integrate it, now it's all in one place, and then anonymize it. So I came up with a technique to anonymize it first and still be able to analyze it. So it, I wouldn't say it protects privacy, but it certainly improves privacy. It's privacy enhancing. And it, what it does is it reduces the risk that your social security number or date of birth run away on you. You know, get you know, subject to unintended disclosure where somebody's stolen it. So one of the things you do is you come in and you help organizations make sense of big data, of information in real time, being able to understand it in real time. And I'm curious to know what precedes being ready to do something like that? What do you need to have in place first? You first have to have enough data to make to get the business outcome that you want. I did a blog post about this called Fantasy Analytics because over half the organizations I go see, I ask them, what do you want to accomplish? And they go, we want to do X. And I go, well, what data do you have to do that? And when I look at the data that they want to use, not even a room full of divine beings could use that data to get that outcome. They lack what I would call a sufficient observation space. They just don't have enough data. And I, I made a funny story out of, oh, I have a bunch of, I mean, I have a bunch of work I do where like, hey, we're trying to find bombs. And I have other, I have, anyway, I took a bunch of customers and I kind of weaved it into one story. And it kind of goes like this. You sit down with somebody and you say, what do you do? And this group goes, we, you know, we, our job is to protect the supply chain. I'm like, okay. And then what are your um, goals? So you go, we want to find bombs. I'm like, oh, I love projects like that. And I go, what do you got? So I'm weaving, again, anonymizing it a bit to protect the innocent here, but they're like, well, we've got the sender and this, the receiver we have who drives the boat to move it around. And we have what's in the manifest and what's in it. And I'm like, what else? They go, that's it. I'm like, you'll never find a bomb. No one writes bomb on manifest. <laughs> are, you, are you smoking crack? That's crazy. So what you have to do is you have to widen the observation space. You have to add more data. That's the first part is, do you have a sufficient data to get the outcome that you want? And another thing about big data is just because you have a pile of big data doesn't even mean there's gold in the hills. Doesn't always mean that. So in, so short story is then, I ask them, you know, what's the low hanging fruit? What can you really create a new business, an important business outcome from? And then the question is, do you have sufficient data to actually do that? And over half the time, I, you have to help them think about what is the sufficient amount of data to do that. So, obviously, a lot of people are really concerned about the NSA prison program. You know, the fear is, you know, with so much personally identifiable information in one place, you know, what false positives could the government take away? Or how might that information in the hands of those with money and guns undermine democracy? So knowing what you know about this space, uh, you know, what are the benefits and drawbacks of a database with that much personally identifiable information in it? I was a really late bloomer to privacy, really late. Like I didn't even know what the word meant until maybe just a decade ago. And I built a lot of systems with a lot of data about people in them. But in 2003, a former executive at CIA said to me, and this is after 9-11, he said to me, if the terrorists blow up our buildings and kill our people, we don't lose. But the day we have to change our constitution to respond, we've lost. 
And I thought that was a really insightful comment. It almost sent a little chill up my spine. And it was one of the many little lessons I've had on my journey about how do you, about responsible innovation, about what data should be collected under which laws and to protect a country. It's, it's such a nuanced conversation, but the, the challenges that the privacy community has is our Fourth Amendment says, you know, that we should be free from unnecessary, you know, searches and seizures need to be reasonable in particular. And the question is, if you're, if you're a government collecting all the data on everybody, is it meet the test reasonable in particular? You know, before the change in the laws, you would have to say, I want a record about Billy the Kid. We're, look, we're investigating Billy the Kid. Do you have any records on Billy the Kid? But we've had a, a number of laws, including Section 215 of the U.S. Patriot Act, some amendments to what's called the FISA, the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, and they make it possible for the government to collect more than that. And this is where the debate's going to be. We have these new laws that make it possible for the government to do this. And the privacy community would say, but how do you reconcile those laws with the Fourth Amendment? And this goes down to any organization. The question is, what are they collecting? How are they using it? That's where the debate was going to be. I mean, do you think ultimately we wind up in an environment where if someone accesses my record, I get a notification, hey, this agency has accessed your record in the PRISM database. Uh, if you want more information or the Freedom of Information Act, you can send a request to whatever. Well, that would make it more like the Fair Credit Reporting Act. You know, the, uh, the credit report has a, one of the cool things about the Fair Credit Reporting Act is there's an inquiry line in the bottom of the credit report that tells you who's looked. So you can go look at your credit report and see who's seen it. Now, the thing is, you can't do that on everybody. Like, if you're doing a secret, covert um, investigation on somebody, you can't tell them you're investigating them. But shouldn't there be some sort of judicial... Well, there's, there's going to be... I think there's going to be changes coming. I don't know what they are. This is what lawyers and policy people are working on. I, this is, this is, will be an interesting and important debate for our country. Do, do secrets have a future, or are we moving into an inevitable world where everyone will have access to everything? It's going to be really hard to have a secret in the future. Secrets are going to get really, really hard to have. It's, the world is going to become more transparent. I'm, it's very fascinating. I think the two things I worry about on that, one is, if you knew everything was going to be known, would you decide to change your behavior? Would you start to, would you want to look a little more normal? Or would you hope? There's two different kinds of futures there, right? Will everybody try to look more normal to get to the fight their way to the center of the bell curve? Or will the world become more tolerant of everybody's differences and uniquenesses? And I'm hoping for the world. Well, probably both are true. And by the way, you know, the first one would not be anything new. I, I, um, I could admit now that in college I had a Wilson Phillips tape. I never listened to it around my roommates because I was embarrassed that it would make me, you know, effeminate and I didn't want to be seen that way. So, you know, we've always been conscious of projecting an aspirational image of ourselves to others that isn't necessarily congruent with who we are. So I think as young people and digital natives become more aware of the fact that this information is being collected and could ultimately be triangulated and used against them someday, then rather than express realities about themselves on social media, they'll, they'll share things that are aspirational. And we're seeing that already. I mean, we're in this environment now where people have this sort of reflex to share every moment of their life on a social network, but really only those those moments that they want to be remembered. 
So I, I don't think there's a lot of people, you know, sharing pictures of themselves, you know, at the uh, at the uh, the family planning center or, you know, checking in for kidney dialysis. Right. But at the same time, you know, if it's a little Johnny covering, uh, you know, second base for the first time, you know, that that'll be the shot. Well, where the other data is leaking out, as it turns out, your friends give you up. It's the other pictures that your friends take that they they want to be, have remembered. Is, is where there's a lot of uh, leakage about what you would consider personal to you. Like one of the survey questions I'll ask people in, in, in audiences that I speak to, I say, how many of you are not in Facebook? And they, I don't know what the number is. Let's say 10% raise their hand. I go, well, that's just a lie. You're all on Facebook. They go, huh? I go, you just haven't claimed your territory. Because as soon as your name and contact information is in anybody else's address book and they've uploaded it, trust me, there is an entire folder there based probably everybody on earth. You're already in there. So your friends are giving you up, and this is going to continue to happen, and it's going to cause a lot of release of data, and it'll make it much harder to have secrets. But is it, but is it bad? I think we're going there. And the question is, I think organizations are going to figure out how to try to harness that in a way that's as often as possible. That's the way they should do it. So, so Jeff, you, know, you already told us that you're a latecomer to, to privacy, and um, you're the father of three adult children who probably, you know, when they were young, there was digital, wasn't really that big of a deal. But now obviously we're in this environment where everything's recorded. So if you were fathering younger children growing up in this environment, you know, with what you read about uh, cyber bullying and uh, false positives, winding up convicting, you know, the Boston marathon Perpetrators and all, all this type of stuff that's going on, and knowing what you know about business intelligence and analytics, what advice do you have for parents of young children today who are sort of guiding those young future citizens into the safe and unsafe ways to use digital technology for communications and pleasure and entertainment today? Man, that's a lot of responsibility to put on me. <laughs> I'll tell you how I did it. Yeah, I don't know that I would recommend this for everybody. It's just the way. I'll just tell you the way I did it. I'm not recommending this. Fair okay. enough. Okay. I raised my kids so they know so much about the world and so much about me. Nothing could ever come out about anything I've ever done that would ever surprise them. I gave them the most candid view of who I am. And by doing that, I think I... I would like to think that I insulated them from whatever they would bump. If I'm trying to run around and, and controlling what they can observe when the world's getting harder and harder to have secrets, it's just a house of cards. So I raise my kids to know what, know really who I am and the way that what's really going on in the world. And I think I'd like to think it gave them a level of, of judgment and a true caliber, a true, a tr- as true a calibration as I could help with. Now the jury's still out, but they're doing okay. So hey, so far so good. So my interpretation of that is that you would not set up parental controls on the home Apple computer. You know what? I would not want them to be under 13 and lie about their age and have access to things that are, you know, there's, you know, the, the COPA law, right? I would, I would be careful about that. So it depends what age that you're talking about, right? But at, at, from that age, and then the platforms that are knowing what the ages are, 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 trying to have some due diligence to make sure that things aren't uh, being used. So I give them a lot. I give my kids tons of freedom over 13, tons and tons of freedom. But under 13, because, um, you know, 
They'll just be at their friend's house and see it. It just says, Daddy's trying to control me. I mean, I... My eight-year-old yeah. uses YouTube for everything. He's learned, to play, he's learned to play tennis on YouTube. He's learned to juggle on YouTube. He learns how to use Adobe products on YouTube. Everything, anything he wants to learn, that he just goes to YouTube. So cool. And he searches it, and he finds a little video made by some other eight-year-old who tells him how to use the, you know, the, the, the cropping tool in some application, or, or he watches Rafa Nadal with his stroke, and he goes outside and practices it. But, you know, I'm, I'm fearful that, you know, he's going to search, I don't know, something that's going to wind him up on some page where he's either going to see, you know, some pornography yeah. or some uh, violence or something like hate, some hate, whatever. Yeah. And, and so I, do I, do I put on the parental controls or do I just teach him? Hey, he, first of all, he's the type of kid who, if he did see that, he would go away from it. I think. Yeah. I, I mean, for, again, I'll just tell you about me and my, the way I've fathered is I would just, my communication has been so open with my kids. We just talk about absolutely everything. So if they bump into something like that in the world, and by the way, just because you're controlling at your house, as soon as they go to a friend's house and it's not, you're right back there. You're right back there. And, and it's just, you're controlling it and somebody else isn't, and they still bump into it. So I would just make them ready for it and have good communication. So education rather than surveillance. That would be, yeah. And that's, you know, that's interesting because it goes right back to a lot of things I learned about privacy in Vegas. <clears throat> you know, there are hyper, there's a lot of sensors in Vegas, but they're very rarely sensing everybody individually. They throw the video away. They just keep it if there's a bad incident. It's not like, you know, the, the joke is it's like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas and then it stays on video. But the truth is they just throw the video away. And when they find... Um, flaws in games. They don't go instrument and do background checks on all their customers more. They fix the flaw in the game. And and what do they do to insulate their employees and individuals from making mistakes that could re reap havoc? Yeah, they use training. You know, they use training and change process. They change. They they fix process and then they train the employees to follow the process. That's what they do. Uh-huh. Yeah. They just, I'll give you a scam. They, um, somebody, did t somebody watched the outcome of a roulette, on a roulette game. Every time the ball falls in a number, this person wrote down every number for weeks. And they realized the wheel had a bias. It was slight. It wasn't perfectly balanced. They played to the bias, and over a few weeks, they won like $5 million. The casino finally figured out how they were winning. Like, they just turned the game into a bank, you know, into an ATM machine. So they closed the wheel down. Did they surveil more people? Did they change? You know, how did they fix that? They just implemented a simple mechanism, the frequency with which they test the wheels for balance. And then they put no more surveillance on any people to prevent that from happening again. They fixed the process. Jeff Jonas, IBM Fellow. Thank you for joining us. Thanks. You've been listening to On the Record Online with Eric Schwartzman the podcast about how technology is changing the world of communications. To subscribe to the podcast or share feedback, visit us online at ontherecordpodcast.com, on Twitter at ontherecord, or send email to ontherecordpodcast at gmail.com. On the Record Online is hosted by Eric Schwartzman, an independent online communications consultant whose clients include the U.S. Department of State, the United States Marine Corps, the U.S. Embassy of Greece, the Government of Singapore, Johnson & Johnson, Toyota, 
Southern California Edison, the Environmental Defense Fund, and dozens of small to medium-sized organizations. For information about engaging Eric Schwartzman as a speaker, social media trainer, or digital strategist, visit www.ericschwartzman.com or send email to eric at ericschwartzman.com.